This session is from the 2022 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. For more information, please visit shepherds360.org. Well, it's 2.30, and I believe it's time to begin. I've been asked to introduce myself and to open in a word of prayer. My name is Tim Sigler. I have the privilege of serving as provost and dean here at Shepherd Seminary. And on behalf of all that is Shepherd Seminary, I want to welcome you both to the 360 conference again, and especially uh, those of you who've chosen to inflict yourself with attending my presentation. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for some time together today. We ask that it would be both instructive and helpful. We ask that you would guide us through Scripture to an ethic that truly honors the ultimate Prince of Peace whom you have sent and whom you invite people from all the families of the earth to embrace. We give you thanks in his name. Amen. <clears throat> law, law enforcement and lawlessness defunding the police and weaponizing the DOJ and FBI. How would a Hebrew prof like myself come into contact with such an urgent and modern ethical issue? Well, sometime back in teaching a course on life in Bible times, I would have my students select a topic related to daily life and trace that topic, whether it was what people ate in antiquity, how people dressed in antiquity, their customs of marriage or family life, etc., and trace it through the ancient cultures of the Bible. In 2016, a work was being produced, edited by Ed Yamauchi and Marvin Wilson, titled The Dictionary of Daily Life in Biblical and Post-Biblical Antiquity. You can imagine, with a title like that, it flies off the shelf. Well, <clears throat> at least for people who do what I do, I was thrilled to hear in advance that it was coming about, and so I wrote to Ed Yamauchi, Professor Emeritus of History at Miami of Ohio University, with whom I had had some previous interaction in the Evangelical Theological Society, and I said, hey, if you've got an opening for an article, it looks like your book is doing exactly what I asked my students to do, tracing themes of daily life through the ancient cultures, and interacting with the primary source material from those different eras of history. And he said, all the articles have been assigned, but if someone drops out, I'll contact you. And, you know, he contacted me. He said, I have one article. It's on police and prisons in the ancient world. Hmm, I thought, this is... I wrote my dissertation on the Song of Solomon. I'm the, I'm the love doctor. Uh... It's a long way, although some people say marriage is not a word, it's a sentence. Um, that's not really what I was hoping for, but um, I said yes, and I'm really glad I did. It forced me into the literature on various themes that I never would have encountered related to especially police and prisons in the ancient world, speaking of those Mesopotamian cultures of Sumer, Akkad, Assyria, Babylonia, Persia, looking at primary source material in this essay, 
contributors were not allowed to consult or at least not to quote and cite secondary literature. It all had to be from the ancient world. So I was dealing with Egyptian texts, eventually with Greek and Roman texts, with, of course, the Hebrew scriptures and the cognate languages surrounding the world of the Old Testament, with Greek and Roman sources for uh, New Testament backgrounds, and then Second Temple Jewish literature and early Christian literature. I learned a ton. But then the world has gone a little crazy on this topic. Maybe you've heard that when a cop on a motorcycle gives you a ticket for no seatbelt, you realize it's not about safety. In this current moment in America, there is a distrust of government, perhaps because sin is universal and scandals abound. Disputes on social media cause us to, well, speak our minds even when nothing may be in them. Information is accepted with little limited context or analysis, and there is this growing division over race and class. Some, in the wake of the George Floyd incident, rioted and demanded that we defund the police. And it would not be new to the recent current administration to attempt to weaponize the justice system. This problem, in fact, isn't new at all. In fact, over the years, there has been an attempt to limit these problems of weaponizing the justice system. In other words, placing the people with whom you disagree politically under investigation, hoping to prosecute them, your political enemies. There was an attempt after the abuses by J. Edgar Hoover to limit the term of the FBI director, and one reason for that was so that the FBI would not be able to endlessly prosecute the people with whom its leadership disagreed. Further, there have been limitations on federal prosecutors and their ability to bring tax or campaign finance violation charges in order to prevent the weaponization of the federal law enforcement apparatus against their political enemies. For instance, in the wake of the Nixon-era abuses and the Ted Stephen prosecutions, more and more have attempted to bring some sort of campaign finance regulation into play. Further, regulatory and enforcement directives to prevent banks that were funding firearms industry companies were further, uh, let me just read this section, regulatory and enforcement directives to prevent banks funding of the firearms industry the misuse of federal forfeiture of funds and assets to fund pet causes. These, these regulations have also come about. So you can see regulations and limitations to kind of keep law enforcement in check because, well, there can be this movement from a goal of serving and protecting to where you are the ones calling the shots about who gets served and who gets protected and abuses can occur. In fact, there really is a delicate balance between serving the public and stopping bad actors. Think about it. Most police encounters are already tense. I'm reminded of a couple who got pulled over 
the officer came to the driver's window, asked for license and registration, and he could sense some tension in the car. He said, uh, you're going a little faster today, weren't you? And he said, no, officer, I always drive the speed limit and my cruise control was set. But his wife piped up and said, oh, no, he doesn't. He always speeds. And the officer was kind of surprised, so he thought to de-escalate the situation, and he said, well, I do see you're wearing your seatbelt. And she said, yeah, he, he put it on as soon as he saw your lights. Uh, and then the officer asked, does she always act like this? And she said, only when he's had too much to drink. These situations are already tense. And look, police are being shot in gunfights. Uh, they are not called normally to family picnics and birthday parties for fun. They are called into difficult situations in which they need to be able to not only protect the public, but protect themselves. One question that has been asked is, are politicians handcuffing criminals or prosecutors? As you think about this, even as you attempt to be informed voters, we cannot escape, at times, the horrific images that have come across our media of what appear to be at least unwise decisions made by those in authority. And when those unwise decisions are made, well, at times there can be enormous political consequence. I'm reminded of the story from earlier this year when in Miami, Florida, uh, the court overturned the conviction of a cop who shot the caregiver there with his hands up while the police officer was attempting to shoot the autistic man holding a toy truck who was under the care of the man whose hands are up, who was yelling, don't shoot, don't shoot. But, you know, there was difficulty in communication. The officer says he can't, he couldn't really understand what was being said. And he saw this toy truck and assumed it was a gun. He fired at the young autistic man sitting upright but missed and hit the caregiver. Thankfully, no one was killed. But accidents can happen. Can we just say police are people too? Um, that, that bad decisions can be made in, in a moment's notice and without notice? And, and, well, then consequences, of course, in light of a world full of amateur media specialists, since we all have our phones with us today and are ready to record and to then distribute without context and maybe from an angle where we don't even have all the facts. And therefore, I want to turn our attention a bit to defining these terms, which were not the subtitle, but the title of my discussion. Law, law enforcement, and lawlessness. The establishment of human government comes for us in Genesis chapter 9 where we read in verses 5 and 6, And surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast I will require it, and from every man, from every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whosoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he created man. You see, every person is important because they are made in the image of God, the imago Dei. 
And if any person murders another, according to God's design in the establishment of human government, the only solution for just judgment by one who bears the image of God and that image of God is taken away is for mankind to say that is wrong, that is so wrong that the perpetrator's life must also be taken. You see, this was also the case in many ancient Near Eastern law codes. Perhaps you've heard of the old Babylonian law code known as the Code of Hammurabi. It, from 1792 to 1750, shows the rule of this ancient Babylonian king, and you'll notice that there are many parallels to the Law of Moses. Many of the codes or specific laws written in the Law Code of Hammurabi are very much like those found in the Torah, in the Pentateuch, in the books of Moses. For instance, the Lex Talionis Law, of course that's not Hebrew, it's Latin, but it means something like an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's the Law of Just Restitution, Lex Talionis. And it occurs in the Code of Hammurabi to say that if a person has damages in a certain type of category, the restitution for those categories must also be just or equitable. In other words, if someone breaks another person's arm, the other person cannot take their eye out. If they take an eye, the other person cannot take a life. Further, there are various laws related to the accusation of adultery. Laws related to the slavery that was allowed where people would place themselves or their family members under a temporary type of um, scenario in which they would work for another until their debt could be paid. This indentured servant-like relationship, of course, was to be completed after a period of time, and this permitted type of slavery has nothing to do with a much later transatlantic slave trade in a chattel slavery sense. This is where perhaps you take your uh, strapping, youthful, muscular young son and say, hey, you know, could you take one for the family? Uh, our crops are uh, drying up, but the folks down the way a bit, they've got lots going on. Maybe you could work for them, help them out. This is that type of slavery that was permitted. Kidnapping, of course, was outlawed. Uh, dangerous animal laws, like the goring ox, they're mentioned in the Code of Hammurabi and in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, or in the book of Exodus. The goring ox could accidentally, without notice, uh, place their horns into the flesh of a person. It could damage the person. But what if you have an ox that is known to gore? It's known to be a dangerous, goring ox. Well, then, it's not only the punishment of the ox, it's the punishment of the owner and the liability that you knew this was a dangerous animal. You didn't keep it penned up. You didn't keep it tied up. Uh, it's the owner who has liability. And I would liken those laws of the goring ox to modern laws of, against well-known, perhaps, breeds of dogs or other animals that could harm others that modern societies have today. But I'm already stealing my own thunder. You see, these ancient laws in no way provide an example, even though their dates in the Code of Hammurabi are some maybe 300, 
50 years prior to the giving of the law of Moses. This is not an example of borrowing, where the Bible borrowed from the law of Hammurabi. No, it's the same types of laws. Notice it's not every one of the laws of Hammurabi, and they're not listed in order. If I were checking a student's paper for plagiarism, I'm looking for the whole document. I'm not looking for an instance where they, uh, the two papers both mention some of the same facts. See, you call that research, not plagiarism. But when it looks like the whole document and sounds like the whole document, or they're all listed in order, so the same process of thought is there, then you can make a claim of borrowing. The Code of Hammurabi is this large stone object on which these codes, these laws, these expectations were, were written out in these wedge-shaped letters. And they were simply listed. There was not a narrative, for instance. There was not a creation account. There was not a flood account. There was not a choosing of the patriarch and the founding of the nation account. There was not, you see, slavery and Egyptian bondage. There was not coming out and going to Mount Sinai where God would give the law. None of that is in the Code of Hammurabi. It's just one, two, three, through 300-something. Whereas the law of God in the Torah you notice there's an entire narrative setting in which various laws take place. And you don't get them all chunked down from Mount Sinai at once. No, some have a whole book, like the book of Leviticus, to tell about the offerings and the priests and their duties. Some are found in the book of Numbers, and others are repeated in the book of Deuteronomy in preaching form. So, in no way could it ever be possible that the charge would stick, that the Torah, the law of Moses, is a borrowing of mere laws from Mesopotamia. There are many laws that are not parallel, that have no connection, but there are many that do. I would suggest that those many that do are common to any ordered society. You know, as soon as you begin to put yourselves together, as soon as you begin to think about how will we live in peace and harmony together, you're going to need laws about stealing. You're going to say, don't kidnap my kids or my livestock. You're going to have to say, well, and if you do break something, then there needs to be just restitution. I used to take my students to the Orient Institute at the University of Chicago, where they provided for us a beautiful museum of what might be called ancient Near Eastern history, but the rest of us could call it the Bible Museum, because so many of those artifacts relate to the cultural world of the Bible. We would stand next to the replica of the Code of Hammurabi. Can I confess, I'm really tempted to just thump it because it's hollow. And, and that's not the real one. The real one's in the Louvre in Paris. And we all should go see it on a field trip someday. It's amazing. But when we look at the Code of Hammurabi, we are not seeing something that at all could have been copied to give us something as amazing and thoroughgoing as the law of Moses from God and Mount Sinai. Instead, what we see are those common organizing type of factors that any society would need. In fact, there are many correlations to what is commanded of God's people in the New Testament. You'll notice I do mention the word lawlessness in the title of our talk today, First John is very clear to say 
that it was not for lawlessness that Christ has saved us. He didn't save us so that we would have no obligations, so that we could be so free that we have no responsibilities. No, in fact, the New Testament tells us, while we're not under the law of Moses, because God gave that to the children of Israel to tell them how to live in covenant obedience to them, to him in the land, we're not in the land, we're not under the theocracy, we're not under the law of Moses, but we don't get to decide for ourselves our own ethics. We are under the law of Christ. We are obligated to him. And therefore, there are a lot of actually overlapping ideas that you could find in the Code of Hammurabi. Don't murder, don't steal, don't kidnap, just restitution. How about issues of family law? That you find in the Code of Hammurabi, in the Law of Moses. And what do you know, it's a part of the responsibility given to the followers of Jesus as well. Now, how about law enforcement? In antiquity, men of households looked after the safety of those in expanding spheres of family, clan, tribe, and the broader society. And, you know, that wouldn't be a bad idea today. Some people have learned that maybe some involvement of the family could help. I love this photo of dads on duty, six members of this team who started taking shifts in the halls of Southwood High School to calm students, to spread positivity. That would spread some positivity right there in the hall. Just look and to keep the peace. They formed a volunteer group, and lots of good is coming from it. You know, more dads need to be on duty. Well, from the time of Moses, such individuals, we'll say the heads of households, exercised formal judicial power in the congregation and would have delegated any policing duties to others. In fact, in the absence of public prosecutors, it was the duty of each individual to be on watch in the community and to bring charges against evildoers when a crime was witnessed. But, but, it should be noted, investigations and trials could also be manipulated. I should have brought this up as a slide on the screen, but I'll just turn there for a moment to 1 Kings uh, chapter 21, where the wicked queen Jezebel distorts justice and manipulates an investigation. In this famous biblical example, we find in 1 Kings 21, 19, and she wrote the letters. She said, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him saying, you have cursed God and the king and then take him out and stone him to death. You see, it's nothing new for people to craft completely fabricated accusations against the innocent. You see, several terms indicate a formal awareness of policing roles in ancient society. Maybe we could say, just by way of definition, that a police force is a body of trained persons authorized to preserve civil order and well-being at all times by enforcing enacted laws. And that the term police in our English language is derived from the Greek word polis, or city, 
which points to the urban origin of the concept. Here, we'll note several terms in your notes, your handout, that suggest a formal awareness of policing roles in ancient Israelite society. Well before uh, the New Testament era, you have already the concept of a shoter, who was an official or officer who exercised civil, judicial, or military authority, or provided supervision as when Pharaoh's taskmasters appointed foremen to oversee Israelite workers. The term shoter forms the root of the modern Hebrew word for police, the word mishtara. The shomer was a guard or watchman, and such individuals functions at times to patrol cities at night and to deter crime. The synonymous mishmar is from the same root and is used in parallel with shomer to speak of those who protect the city. The sofe referred to the watchman who teamed up with the soer, the gatekeeper, to cooperate in the policing and protecting of walled cities. It's also possible that the pakid, a deputy, or commissioner, acted as a policeman. Further, it's evident that the Levites would have att uh, arrested any person who was attempting to violate the sanctity of the tabernacle and later the temple, since it was their duty to protect it, and as protectors, that's what they would do. The Negid Beit Elohim, the captain of the house of God, or the Pakid Negid Beit uh, Yehovah, the chief commissioner of the house of the Lord, served under the high priest with authority over the temple, precincts, and gates. So you could look throughout the Hebrew scriptures and find numerous examples of terms like this that would give evidence of some official force. The earliest form of policing arose among the Sumerians, who appointed soldiers to keep watch over their cities at night. Unfortunately, some of these men established traditions that have haunted police work ever since. In the abuse of their authority, they were delinquent in their duties and indulged in dishonest and illegal activity that is already documented more than 4,000 years ago. Again, these various terms are easy to find throughout the scriptures. But coming to the New Testament, Herod Antipas, tetrarch of the Galilee and Perea, he imprisoned John the Baptist at the fortress city of Machaerus. I've shown a little photo that I took of the huh, windy path up to Machaerus. This is one of those places I like to tell the students, you go ahead, I've been there. You should see it with your own eyes. I'll be waiting here by the bus and the cold water. Uh, I'll see you in three hours. You know, it's a long hike, uh, but you should see this place where John the Baptist was mm, imprisoned. Of course, he was imprisoned there because of his disapproving admonitions against Herod's adulterous marriage to Herodias, the wife of his half-brother Herod Philip. And in time, the prophet-turned-political prisoner was beheaded at the crest of Herodias. Well, friends, this, set, this simple biblical New Testament example is just one of many. I mean, in so many ways, even the crucifixion of Jesus can be seen as the, well, trumped-up charges against a political opponent. We must see, then, that police and prisons and uh, the whole realm of law enforcement brings up a number of instructions for us today 
examples from the New Testament. For instance, Paul was warned not to rebel against the authorities that God had set and established. Peter concurred and said, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. And this sentiment of submission extended to police forces of the Roman Empire that persecuted the early followers of Jesus. I'm reminded of this famous story of Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna in Asia Minor, who was an early martyr. He encountered the local police who arrested him and delivered him to the proconsul. The arresting officers found him lying down in the upper room of a certain little house from which he might have escaped into another place, but he refused. The will of God be done, he said. He lavishly fed them and sought their permission to pray at length. His prayer was so convicting that many began to repent that they had come forth against so godly and venerable an old man. But we come to this issue as well of lawlessness. Lawlessness, it's a temptation for all, and especially for those in authority. Perhaps you'll recall the famous Psalm 2 and the incredulous question of the psalmist who asked, why do the nations rage and the uh, peoples imagine a vain thing against the Lord and against his anointed? They're saying, let us tear off their fetters and break their bonds. Like, this is the cry of the kings. They're saying, we do not want God's laws. We do not accept his authority. And as they shake their fists in the face of Almighty God, these powerful world rulers, of course, will have to one day meet their maker. Psalm 2 goes on to speak about how that will happen with the establishment of the Lord's anointed, his king, who will rule from Zion, and how he will rule with a rod of iron and he will bring judgment on these kings. An ultimate expression of lawlessness will be realized in the political leader of the tribulation period, spoken about in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 8, who is only once there in scripture called the man of lawlessness. Leon Morris, in the Dictionary of Paul and his letters, states that the man of lawlessness is mentioned just in one passage in the whole of Scripture, namely the place where Paul writes to the Thessalonians to correct the view that the day of the Lord has already arrived. Paul assures his readers that before the Lord's return, the man of lawlessness, also known as the man of sin, must appear. He says further that this lawless one is the son of perdition, that he is strongly opposed to God, that he even sits in the temple claiming to be God, that there is power restraining him, and that when that power is removed, the Lord Jesus will destroy him. This man has not appeared, Paul argues, in his day, and therefore the day of the Lord could not have already come. But that day is coming, one day, and perhaps very soon. This temptation toward lawlessness, toward breaking of the heavenly legislation of universal morality 
and the creation ordinances is so common in the heartbeats of those who make laws to serve themselves today. Perhaps we conclude with some final words of guidance for our day. First of all, and I'd like to turn to these specific passages as we do, Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 19, we are reminded that justice must be blind, not selective. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of righteousness. Verse 20, justice, only justice you shall follow. Then you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. These instructions for ancient Israel would serve well any nation. In fact, justice is always informed by a value system. We read about this in Psalm 89, verse 14. In Psalm 89, 14, we are told, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Uh, this is how the Lord rules, and this is how those who honor the Lord with their authority also rule. Further, Psalm 99, verse 4, would teach us similarly, the king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. And of course, the famous Psalm 19 that speaks of the law of the Lord and describes it as follows. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. These words that describe the righteous rule of the Lord himself and the righteousness promoted by his economy for ancient Israel and the righteousness that would one day be realized by his Messiah also are said to be generally helpful for anyone. The book of Proverbs is a book of international hope and wisdom in that the book of Proverbs as wisdom literature does not really emphasize Israel's history, Israel's government, Israel's king, Israel's laws, except to point people to the law of the Lord. However, these are generally true statements, generally wise sayings that are helpful to anyone. And in Proverbs 14, verse 34, we read, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Any nation on the earth benefits when its rulers rule righteously. In the same way, every nation suffers when their rulers are unrighteous. Isaiah chapter 9 holds up this wonderful hope of messianic rule, which is certainly demonstrating righteousness. You see, any human justice is incomplete until the ultimate prince of peace and king of righteousness arrives. This prophecy states, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, 
and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We continue to note in the next verse that of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. You know who's going to make this happen. This prophecy concludes with a statement that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And finally, Hebrews, in the New Testament, explains even further about this king of righteousness in chapter 5, verse 6, and then later in verse 10. You know that name, Melchizedek, in Hebrew, Melchizedek, my king of righteousness, the Melech, the king who is exemplifying God's tzedakah, his righteousness. It is announced to the messianic king Jesus, you are a priest forever after the order of the king of righteousness, Melchizedek. And later in verse 10, being designated by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Justice is incomplete until the reign of the Prince of Peace and the King of Righteousness. Friends, that's my presentation. And if you have comments, questions, concerns, then my wife is here and she'll be happy to hear them and we'll talk about them later. Uh, perhaps I should conclude with something a little more light. Perhaps you've heard this related to the issue of just rule and order. Someone has said that heaven is a place where the police are British, the cooks are Italian, the lovers are French, the mechanics are German, and it's all organized by the Swiss. Hell, on the other hand, is a place where the cooks are British, the mechanics are French, the lovers are Swiss, the police are German, and it's all organized by the Italians. Well, with that, I conclude. Thanks so much. How's our time? Seven minutes to go. Well, then you have time to get somewhere else. No, or uh, or to to discuss this topic further. Perhaps we even have members of law enforcement or of the judiciary, uh, people who serve in positions of authority. Uh, who would like to make a comment about something related to their field. Uh, thank you for your service, by the way, if that describes you. Well, how about getting to that next session then? I'll be up here if anyone would like to engage further. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks for listening to this session from the 2022 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. This material is copyrighted and may not be altered or sold. For information, please visit shepherds360.org.